Yo, yo, yo. Thank you guys so much for tuning back in to another episode of the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast. Robert Gregor is the guest that I have for you today, and he is a approved therapist in EMDR. Now, most of us, when we think of therapy, think of talk therapy. You sit down in a chair, you discuss your problems, and you try to heal that way. EMDR is a little bit different, and Robert's going to go into what the differences are in the two types of therapies. But before we get there, Robert gives us a quick rundown of what it was like for him growing up, the abuse that he had to endure both mentally and physically. But I think the most poignant part of this conversation is how we close it as we discuss sexual abuse among men. Enjoy this episode. Welcome back to another fantastic episode of the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast, the show that features amazing stories of recovery and success. Experience the ups and downs of entrepreneurship and sobriety and the mindset it takes to be successful through the lens of our guests. Now here's your host, Jay Ball. Yo, 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 welcome back to the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is Justin. I'm your host. Guys, our guest today, his name is Robert Gregor. He comes to us from Vancouver, BC, which is kind of in my neck of the woods and where I grew up. I, I went to college at the university or uh, Western Washington University, which was right tucked up in the northwest corner of the United States, about 20 minutes from the Canadian border. So I ventured up to BC quite a bit in my college days and just growing up. Uh, but we're not here to just to talk about Vancouver, BC, although I love that city. We're here to talk about a lot deeper things with with Mr. Gregor here. And he's a specialist, a certified EMDR therapist. If you don't know what that is, we're going to dive real deep into what that is. It seems to be a life-changing experience that can happen in just a matter of days to get you over some trauma. And since I last talked to Robert... This is a new thing that you're going to have to touch on, the celebrity savior, all right? I got to hear about what's going on there because that's a new tagline that I haven't seen since last I saw you. But anyways, we're going to get to all of that in this episode. Robert, thanks for joining me. Hey, Justin. Thanks so much for having me, man. Man, it is so good to talk to you again. I I hinted on a little bit. We've chatted in the past. We met at PodMax, which a handful of guests on my show have met there. Uh, that's I've been on their shows. They've been on mine now, and it's just an incredible place to network. and And so this is where I found uh, Mr. Gregor here, and we talked outside of that because I'm big into therapy. I think it, I think everybody should have a therapist. I think everybody needs someone that they can dump their shit on. That is not your mom, dad, uncle, sister, brother, son, cousin family member, somebody that's, that's, that you're just not attached to. And, and I think it's just really important. And the, the more I, I, I get into my, this part of my life, the more I realize how important therapy is. And, and there are many, 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 many forms of therapy. And it's not all just sitting in a chair and talking through your issues. And so that's what we're going to touch on with Mr. Gregor here today. Uh, but before we get there, He's got a past, and, and, and a past that probably brought him to this profession. And so that's what I want to hear about first. Robert, take us back to where you grew up, 
Um, what were some of your struggles? What was life like growing up as a young man? And how did that lead to us having this conversation here today? Well, Jay Ball, let me sit on my chair and shovel some shit at you over here. <laughs> man, it's, uh, I have had a past just like probably, you know, everybody's had a past. I always say that nobody escapes their childhood unscathed. Honestly, you, it's, it's a real thing for real. So where I came from a very small town um, in Canada, Ontario, uh, in a small, small town called West Warren, we're talking 1500 people small, it's a very, very small place. We had one stoplight that flashed red. That was our intersection. That was it. Wow. So we're really talking really small time. I am an only child. I grew up um, in this in, in this environment where uh, my father is and well, still is the the family or the the, the town doctor. Is uh, a GP. He was a heart surgeon for a while, so um, I was sort of around this healing um, environment for quite a bit of my life. My mom talked about psychology quite a bit growing up. We we did this thing which I really don't recommend. For people to do but we would gossip about people we would sort of analyze them you know oh this person must be dealing with that sort of thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and um at the time i just you know i, I was just getting close to my mom now i realized ah, probably don't want to just go around analyzing people <laughs> it's really not that healthy <laughs> but as a kid the reason why i share my my father's uh career is that um he came from a very poor environment where you know, his parents, his mother would, you know, she'd have to trudge through the, the, the ditches in Romania, because that's where he's from. And she would have to look for, you know, bottles just to recycle in order to feed them. You know, she's a, a decent sized family. You know, they literally had nothing, like nothing. And that was an important part of my journey because that's my father my uncles and cousins became lawyers so you'd think that we'd have you know tons of money and everything around but we had we had enough to get by we had we had like you know what i call a copper spoon childhood we had all the stuff but we weren't loaded or anything like that having those material needs met i what i was lacking what i didn't seem to get was a lot of emotional guidance my parents never knew how to help me channel my emotions, how to determine, hey, Robert, you're feeling, you're probably feeling disappointed right now. You're feeling frustrated. You're feeling X, Y, and Z. And that's something that they, they weren't really, I mean, they wanted to, I'm sure, but they just didn't have the tools themselves because when you're focused and, you know, their childhood was focused on survival, emotions come kind of second after survival. So anyway, so that's how I, I grew up. Because of that lack of emotional guidance, I also didn't know how to manage my emotions. So what I ended up doing was eating them. So I became very overweight. So I was addicted to sugar and uh, carbs. And you know, I liked my chips and stuff like that and pop. And then I became addicted to um, TV because it was a good escape. Video games when I first discovered Super Mario Brothers. You know, and then pornography when I was like 11 or 12, and that kind of came into my picture as well. So those were sort of the early addictions, and that really helped me to, you know, manage or get like get my way through that time in my life. Of course, I was bullied as a child. I got called my my nickname was short fat with glasses. 
I was never really physically bullied. You know, I, I remember being pushed up into a locker one time, and that was because I wore spandex on the first day of school in ninth grade. They said, Robert, don't ever wear that again. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll never wear spandex again. And to this day, I never wear worn any spandex, maybe in a Halloween costume. No, I don't think so. But anyway, so that's, that's what it was. I, I was emotionally bullied. Mm-hmm. You know, we probably talk a lot more about that because it's actually a story that many people have experienced these different kinds of addictions. And of course, my addictions went into greater addictions when I came to my undergrad. Uh, I had believed that my, you know, lack of massive friend circle, I didn't have a really any girlfriends in my, in my high school. I always thought it was because I was fat. <laughs> that was a, it's because of my body. I used to stand in front of my, my mirror when I was a child and I used to be, you know, stand totally naked and I was just look at my body and I would hate myself. I would just try to literally tear the fat off of my body. I would beat myself up because of course, if you've ever self-inflicted at all, or listeners have self-inflicted, it's a lot easier often to feel the physical pain than it is to feel the emotional pain. So I was actually numbing myself out. Mm-hmm. So fast forward, I get to on my undergrad and I think, hey, if I lose the weight and I get in shape, you know, I'll be, I'll be fine. So I hit the gym like five or six days a week for two or three hours. I ate much better. Didn't, dr- well, I, I shouldn't say I didn't drink. I drank a lot. Um, my, my addictions became alcohol then they went into drugs and then sex and, uh, kind of spiraled out of control to a point I actually landed in jail. I spent six months in jail for participating in a riot all because of, you know, this lack of feeling comfortable in myself. I always felt like I needed to belong somewhere. Just couldn't quite feel like I ever belonged anywhere. Yeah. So that was my past. And then I stumbled my way into psychology. Uh-huh. Well, before we get to psychology, because you just ran through a ton of stuff that I want to really touch on. And I think the first the first big bells that that you're ringing for me right now is all of these things, all of these addictions that you named about yourself that didn't end in alcohol or drugs. You had food mm-hmm. and you had sex and 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 maybe working out and body dysmorphia. And can we, can we talk about those things and, yeah. and maybe just touch on them from a psychological standpoint about these other addictions that people maybe don't see that are in their life or, or the way that they're using things, normal things in their life addictively. That's a great point. Um, usually we, we hear about the, you know, the, the attention, the headline grabbers, you know, like drug addiction and, and an alcohol addiction, but really anything can become addictive if you're using it to the exclusion of, you know, living a healthy life and, and, you know, becoming your fullest potential. So you mentioned working out, I worked out pretty religiously. And I think that became an addiction too. Um, people can go to work and they can become addicted to work, you know, coming home late. Well, back when we used to leave to go to work uh, for most <laughs> of us, you know, coming home later and later, an hour, two hours later every day, that work becomes an addiction. Um, you can become addicted to, you know, playing with your dog or, you know, playing Scrabble with your kids. Anything can become addictive if you're doing that behavior to avoid your emotional pain, because we actually get addicted to not, it's not the, 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 the chemical contra, you know, what's happening in your brain, the dopamine rush. You're not really getting, that's part of it. But what people are actually getting addicted to is the positive 
feeling that goes along with that behavior. Why? Because the behavior is masking and avoiding the deeper emotional pain that the individual is experiencing. And it's too much. We all have a window of tolerance. Like we're not, none of us are superhuman. We've got a limit to the emotional distress that we can experience. And when we feel like we can't manage that emotional, it's too much for us. And we can get into what that is. Um, it's never because you're too weak or anything like that. It's always something much deeper than that. And we, we, we end up finding some behavior that works. You know, if you go to the gym and you're like, oh, I feel great. You get addicted to that great feeling. And that's what we want more of. We're chasing that dragon all the time. We're always trying to, to feel good. We're, mm-hmm. we're hedonistic beings when we come down to it. We, we avoid pain. We move yep. towards pleasure. Yep. That's about it. Right. Right. And, but, and I love that you touched on it right off the bat because a stigma I think that's wrapped around addiction is, is it, is that it's, it's only those people with substance. It's only those people with alcohol or drugs. And that's just not true. And I think that if more people heard that and, and maybe they're hearing it for the first time here, they might look at their life and, and re-examine how they interact with certain things in their life. So I love that you just touched on that. The other thing that I wanted that you touched on was emotional pain versus physical pain. And you almost went into it just here because you said we're trying to mask these feelings, right? When when we come to our breaking point or when we come to our tolerance. And, and for me... When I come to that breaking point, when I feel like my words don't convey what I'm feeling in my head, I tend to inflict pain on myself. Yeah, you're probably not alone there. Why? And I know I've heard it before, and I think I've asked this to many therapists, but we talked about emotional pain versus physical pain. And, and, and that, and the only way I could explain is that my words are just not working and I don't know how else to express myself. And so now I'm not doing this all the time anymore. I'm working on these behaviors because I don't like them, but that, that happens to me and it's happened to me a, a lot less, but that's how I reacted growing up all the way into my thirties. And you touched on it a little yeah, bit. Why, what is that? Well, you know, you're, you're, you're touching on it there. You're, we're overwhelmed with the emotional experience. And one, one, one part of us is trying to put it into words so that we can share it with somebody else, maybe, or just try to understand it yourself. You know, I think that there's been a myth really in, in the healing world that if you can name it, you can tame it. I think you've heard that before. And that's, it's partially true. You know, if you know what you're experiencing, it helps you to gain a little more sense of control over it. But simply, you know, if, if, if I've got a knife in my leg, because that's what it feels like when your pain is so bad, the brain actually doesn't know the difference between emotional pain and physical pain. It's actually lighting up the same areas of the brain. So I like the, the analogy of I've got this knife in my leg. And if all I'm trying to do is, hey, you know what? I've got a knife in my leg. If that's as far as you go, you name it, you still got a knife in your life. Right. And so the, the point is we need to get that knife out. We need to heal it. And so what's actually happening is the emotional experience, it's anger, it's I'm feeling lost. I'm feeling shame. I'm feeling some emotional experience. What goes with that emotional experience, and by the way, it's, you know, 10 out of 10 on the distress scale. Mm-hmm. 
there's a belief system that's attached to it as well. Our brains are designed either by evolution or God or however you want to put this, but our brains are designed to make meaning of our worlds. So it slaps a belief system on it. It needs to make sense for you, the experiencer of that moment. So we'll say something like, wow, I'm really not good enough. Wow, I'm really inadequate or I am just going to fail or I'm going to die. And, you know, 10 days later, you can look back on that experience and be like, wow, I was really not going to die. I was fine. But in that moment, you feel like it. And that's because that feeling in the brain is attached to all different types of trauma or negative experiences that you've experienced in your life, all from the past. And they could be very large traumas, what we call big T traumas, which are, you know, rape or car crash or a terrorist bombing or something that's very obviously traumatic. Or it can be something that's called a small T trauma, like what I experienced emotional bullying. I didn't get, you know, really beat up or anything like that. It didn't leave any physical marks on my body. But what I did get was emotionally beat up every single day for like 12 years. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's what's happening. Their brain is triggering negative experiences, which basically give your brain evidence of, hey, you know what, Robert? Yeah, you are probably going to fail. Yeah, you're a failure. Remember all these, these experiences from the past when you didn't when you got that F on that test and when you when you asked out the girl and she didn't she didn't say yes, all of those were experiences which validate that negative belief that I was feeling in that moment. Does that make sense? It makes a hundred percent sense. And I and and for those of you that might be listening hearing that for the first time, it's that's a it's a lot to take in. And and so I would encourage you to rewind this back and listen to it. you know, give give it a a couple shots. We're gonna talk about a lot of um some big words and, and a lot of different theories and uh, which I want to start to get into now. Right. So you had a ton of trauma, emotional trauma, right? So, and you beat yourself up with a whole bunch of different addictions. You don't just come to the, that realization without a lot of work and without, without a lot of change. So where was your breaking point and where did the real change started to come for Robert? Yeah, that's a good question. And it really is, you hear about that, that rock bottom or that breaking point. And, it, and it, I think it's, it, it is necessary. Unfortunately, it, it, everybody's breaking point is different though. Mine was pretty bad. It was, so it wasn't just, it wasn't just the drugs and the alcohol for me. What happened was I, I was on a vacation with uh, my then girlfriend who I thought I was going to marry someday. I was so madly in, in love with this person. We went on a vacation to a Caribbean island and we enjoyed ourselves a little bit, obviously, enjoying the sun, have a couple of drinks. And we started to get into our regular routine, which was to get angry at each other mm-hmm. for the stupidest things and started a snowball fight. So uh, one, one morning, it happened early in the morning. I just said, ah, screw this. I'm not going to do this today. And I left. And that built up in my partner this probably a sense of abandonment and her, you know, fear of rejection. And, you know, by the way, I promised her mother that I would return her safely mm-hmm. to back home after the trip. So, you know, fast forward, it's nighttime and uh, we're in our hotel room. It's 12 floors, uh, great view overlooking the, the beach. And it's wonderful. And uh, we're having a rum and Coke. And then all of a sudden 
we start at it again. You know, mm-hmm. we it could have been a really romantic evening, but it turned into this dog fight. You know, she started commenting on on different aspects of obviously feeling hurt from me leaving her that day. She turned around and she called me horrible, horrible things like using my worst insecurities, you know, mm-hmm. uh, about my manhood and my, you know, who I am, what I'm doing, my body. You know, she just threw it all at me. Right. I, at this point, wanted to defend myself, which is, you know, the survival instinct, fight, flight, freeze, faint and shut down are the other two. And then I look at her and I call her a gold digger and, you know, all this stuff. And it just mm-hmm. blows up. Right. So it now turns pretty physical. It went from an emotional argument to me trying to lock her on the balcony. And, you know, she got her her leg in there, cranked open the door, busted her way through into the hotel room. I'm back on the balcony, you know, just being like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening right now on vacation. She turns around, she's over by the by the hotel, you know, the, the hallway door room. Right. Uh, 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 yeah. She, she turns around and she looks at me. She locks eyes with me, and then she just darts. She runs full tilt at me on the balcony, and she leaps. She gets one foot on the on the chair on in front of me, and she leaps. And my heart just stopped, and instantly, without even knowing what to do, my arm goes up. I reach her, I like clothesline her back down into the room and I basically bear hug her, hold her on the bed. She's screaming, she's scratching at me. And, you know, I don't know what else to do other than just hold her down. She was like, you know, a wild animal at this moment. And thank God security came. Somebody was like, hey, our vacation's being ruined here. Can you, can you, you know, help these people out? So uh, finally they came. I'm in shock that, that night. I've been just, go to sleep and the next morning i'm like trying to process what just happened yeah i'm at the as you can imagine the pool bar for like eight (laughs) hours straight you know pulling a shift yeah and uh you know drinking shots at left right and center just crying my eyes out thinking like oh my god i'm clearly unworthy of love even this person won't love me like i'm a monster there's something wrong with me all these negative feelings are coming through and you know hotel guests are you know honeymoon or something like that enjoying themselves looking over here at robert just crying his eyes out like this is not the hotel we want to be at right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you know they buy me drinks and stuff eventually it hits me though this is the point i'm like wait a second man like no your girlfriend just tried to commit suicide in a foreign country um you know obviously her death would be one horrible thing but then you'd probably be locked up in guantanamo bay or something like that and uh, this is like your life is going to fall apart. And I recognize in that moment, it's like, hey, I'm worth more than this. I am worth more. I don't deserve it. I don't know what I'm worth or what I deserve, but it's not that. Yeah. That was the moment where I said, okay, I got to do some, some inner, I got to change. Something's not going well here, man. So that was the moment when I first recognized that, okay, I got to do some therapy here. So I, at that point started on my first journey was talk therapy and that was a long journey but that that was the moment that shifted my belief that i deserve something better wow i didn't know that story that's an inc- i mean it's not an incredible that's i mean it's an incredible story but it's unfortunate but it's an incredible story i'm just imagining like just clotheslining this chick just seconds away from 
And you're right. Like you're in a different country. There's different rules. And who knows where that rabbit hole goes if something like that happens, you know? My worst thought was like, I'm going to get pinned for murder. Like that's, that's, that's really like, like, and, which is selfish obviously, but you know, cause she would have died. I was scared. Yeah. I was scared oh, yeah, shitless that's... of myself at that moment. I was like, I can't believe this. So you decide, man, I got to do, I got to, I got to do some therapy. I, I need to, I need, so you start on talk therapy. Now let's talk, we're going to get into the, to EMDR now, but f- before we get in there, let's talk about your traditional therapy. What is your traditional therapy and how to, what is exactly EMDR? What does it stand for? And, and how does that differ from your typical therapy sessions? Yeah, I think that a lot of people are curious about that too. It's, it's very different. So regular traditional talk therapy is the kind that's been uh, immortalized on TV. You see, you know, the couch and the person lays down, you know, traditionally psychoanalysis and the therapist is sitting there writing notes and, you know, eventually maybe might prescribe medication or you know, tell me how that makes you feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the client then continues speaking. And so that's your traditional psychoanalysis. You know, that could take decades before somebody changes something in their lives. It's still, you're going to get great insight, learn a lot about yourself. You know, it's not, I'm not saying it's a terrible thing to do. Then there's CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is probably the most widely used therapy in the world right now. And that's really about understanding a person's belief systems and trying to essentially disprove their fears about themselves and situations pretty classically, like take, you know, the fear of flying, which nobody has these days uh, because nobody's flying anywhere. But, (laughs) uh, (laughs) but, uh, so, you know, the person, the therapist would say, okay, so Robert, why, why are you have this fear of, uh, what's this about? What does it mean about you? And then you know, you'd say, well, I'm going to die. Okay. Well, let's, 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 let's unpack that a little bit. They might say, and, uh, say, well, like when I was little, I, you know, had a turbulent flight and I got scared. Okay. So in the past you had a bad flight. That's probably what's you know, making this worse. Let's, let's, let's explore that. So in the therapy office, um, probably sitting, uh, you know, across from each other, the therapist would try to come up with some evidence and try to bring up the experience, the fear in the patient's mind. And, you know, it's slow, it's called slow, uh, it's called exposure therapy is you're gradually exposing the person to the actual flight. So, so imagine, imagine being on a flight. Okay. Just imagine that. Okay. Okay. Bring in like a picture so you can look at a plane. How do you feel about that? And try to you know, gradually make it worse until maybe you're actually on the flight. And I've even heard common, actually, CBT, the therapist could actually be on the flight with the with the patient um, and go to the destination, essentially trying to disprove that first belief. It's not going to happen. You're more likely to you know, be struck by lightning than to go in a car in a plane crash, right? Mm-hmm. So essentially, that's supposed to just erase the beliefs. It works sometimes. Unfortunately, it doesn't work all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this could take years and years and years and years. And there's a ton of homework that goes along with it. You know, so bring your book around and write down every time when this is going to happen with you. And what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Turns out a lot of people just don't like homework. <laughs> right? So EMDR is quite different. EMDR stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's a mouthful. Uh, so EMDR is quicker. What happens with EMDR is instead of talking, you know, about an experience 
and trying to just disprove it or have shift the person's belief system by talking, which by the way, can at times, if you're especially playing with trauma, just talking can actually re-stimulate the trauma and make it worse, right? You hear a lot of times, like just talk to your best friend about it. That can, yes, that can be helpful. And every time you talk about something, you slightly change it in your brain. But with trauma, it is so entrenched in a person's brain that it can actually re-traumatize the person, especially if they don't have an out to, they don't know how to manage it. Mm-hmm. So that's actually, as a side note, that's what happened with me quite a bit. I went into talk therapy. I would talk about my issues. Mm-hmm. And literally right after the therapy, I closed the therapy. Have a great day have, to, my, to my therapist. I'll go right down to the bar, grab a shot, you know, whatever yeah, and have yeah. a couple beers and i was like oh my god <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it seems, so uh, that, that seems like w- i feel like that's what people think of after therapy to like go have a drink afterwards because it's been an emotional you know conversation probably yeah, not a good coping yeah. mechanism it's 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 not but you know people do what they need to of course and you know so it's like if you got to do that versus something else you know, okay like right. we'll do that so uh, anyway, so EMDR, what we do there is we look at the early belief system that was generated by an early negative experience and trauma, and that forms the basis of the current distress. It's not that your boss fired you, that obviously made it worse, and it was a triggering moment, but it was because when you were little, your father would always yell at you if you didn't make the bed right. You know, nothing you could do was ever good enough for him, for example. So that creates the belief system in the person's brain. The little person's brain, you know, at that time, we're not old enough to understand that his dad's got issues, actually. You know, you're a perfect little child and your father has the issue. You know, we believe it's our fault because we're egocentric. So what EMDR does, we find that early experience and we process it. We actually don't talk very much at all. We talk to just to set up the, what we call a target, that early memory. But afterwards, it's just processing. And it looks really weird. <laughs> it's really weird. Like, it looks like hypnosis. It looks like the therapist is going to be waving their hand back and forth in front of the patient's eyes. And you're just following your hand, the therapist's hand with your eyes. That's classically how it started. And then we can also tap on your knees, tap on your hands, or these days follow a ball across the screen. What that's doing is it's actually accessing both sides of the brain. Before, when you only talked about the trauma, you were activating the right side of the brain, which was where the trauma is stored, sight, sounds, feelings, body sensations. These are all stored in the right hemisphere of the brain. And just talking about its left hemisphere And it's just not, it's like two different languages. Like you're trying to speak to somebody in English and they're Chinese and you're like, I, it's not happening. Yeah. Right. So what EMDR does is it's translator essentially between both hemispheres of the brain. And we very quickly process that earlier experience along with all the other ones in that treatment sequence and that, in that person's brain that are related to that belief system that, you know, I'm going to fail. I'm not good enough. I'm a bad person, whatever that might be. Okay. Uh, so does that makes sense. It makes, yeah, it makes sense. And I'm, and I'm semi-familiar with it. And, and to some, it may seem hokey. I mean, and it may seem, it may seem a little bit far fetched. Give me the background on EMDR. Who came up with it? How'd they come up with it? Like, where does this hypnotic looking thing type of therapy come from? 
Trust that it came from aliens, man. Hey. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Uh, no, it came from Dr. Francine Shapiro, the late, great Dr. Francine Shapiro, uh, back in 1987, I believe is the date, when she stumbled across it by accident. She was in her PhD and she was walking through a park, as the story goes. She was thinking about something very distressing to her. And she was just caught, you know, looking at a tree and a bird back and forth and, you know, this bush over there on the stream. And she just kept, her eyes kept going back and forth. And then she started recognizing that her distressing feeling and thoughts that she was having suddenly went down. And being, of course, the researcher that she was, she was like, hmm, there's something interesting here. So she went and explored that, discovered that she could do it for other things. You know, she could look back and forth and suddenly other distressing thoughts would become less distressing. From there, she then started studying this technique at the time, EMD, it was called. We didn't have the reprocessing part yet. She was convinced it had to do with the eyes. That's why the eye is in their eye movement. But these days, it could just be movement, desensitization, and yeah. reprocessing. So she started studying on um, Vietnam war veterans with major PTSD. She found that it was relieving the PTSD. And you know the symptoms remained absolved. And in fact, people started getting better after you know the three-month study was over, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And since then... It's been, you know, it's been picked up by everybody around the world. All the major, major organizations mm-hmm. think this is absolutely incredible. They're endorsed by World Health Organization, American Psychological Association, American Psychiatric Association, uh, U.S. Veterans Affairs, you know, Traumatic Studies Institute in the, mm-hmm. uh, in the U.K. There's it's everywhere. Right. So, so we what were, you're saying it's yeah. re, it's a reputable thing, and it's it's it's, it's, it's not it's it's not just this hocus pocus like uh, hypnotic looking thing. There's there's definitely some research. When did she discover this? How? What was the year that that this started? 1987. 1987. Okay. Yeah. And so it's been around, yeah. and yeah, over 30 years. It's it's an incredible. I haven't done it. I've I've had one small session with Mr. Gregor, but I plan on having having another one. I know. I I know we haven't yet, but what is the commitment for someone that's looking for this? And is there any preparation that they need to take? You know, and I and I ask this for the different types of therapies that I talk about on here. Is there what types of preparation? Because you're about to dig into and look at some traumas. What what do you need to do, if any, before you before you step into a session with you? And and how long do these sessions typically take? Why what's the benefit do you that you see with EMDR? versus other types of psychotherapy? Yeah, all good questions and really important too. You know, never, never suggest to anybody just to jump in without, you know, feeling comfortable. It's got to be the right decision for you. Right. And the therapist has to be the right therapist for you as well, um, or healer, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. In terms of preparation for EMDR, not much. I, in fact, you know, I, I, I sometimes give some videos for my clients to, to you know have a technique or two down if they want but really honestly you don't need anything you just mm-hmm. walk in if the therapist is good enough you'll just be able to start and start you know basically processing pretty quickly okay now i'm very different than other emdr therapists i've i'm you know been i've seen my own emdr therapist three of them now um, for various issues and it can take you know in the old way of doing it it can take three months was my quickest session, really my quickest treatment. And, but the average was like six months. 
you know, 12 months, two mm-hmm. years, sometimes depending on the complexity of the traumas and the pe- person's uh, treatment sequence, if you know, all the different things right. in your life. So for generally EMDR, I would recommend, you know, I would, I would want the listener to think, expect, you know, six months, eight months, 12 months, mm-hmm. be prepared for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this would be a weekly sessions, by the way, of okay. 60 minutes or 90 minutes per session. Okay. And um, you're never going to just jump into those traumas with, you know, you, there's a, it's, it's a, it's a standardized protocol in many ways where there's, you know, if you're certified in EMDR, which is the other thing to look for, make sure the person's certified, they've done real EMDR training because mm-hmm. there are other organizations out there that are saying that they're EMDR trained, but they're really not mm-hmm. well trained. Mm-hmm. So, um, expect that other than just, you know, if you're, doing this online and to make sure that you're in an environment where you can speak freely and, you know, people know, you know, if you're living with a spouse or, or a child or something, you know, they know that, you know, daddy's busy or mom's busy or something, mm-hmm. be prepared afterwards to have a bit of a, you know, some, some time where you can just sort of relax a little bit. Mm-hmm. So the normal EMDR time to be like 60 minutes, 90 minutes, the way that I work is quite different though. This all started really because of a high-profile media celebrity who mm-hmm. uh, called me to work with me and thought, yeah, come on in. I can help you. She needed, as aptly as this, as this podcast, I have an alcohol addiction. I need to work on that. Uh-huh. You know, I, I can't go on the air without doing a shot. Yeah. So she called me. She comes in. She sits down. And I do the same first session that I did with everybody, you know, the intake session, tell me about your history. This is the consent form and, you know, really letting her know what's involved in therapy. Well, just, she gets up three quarters of the way through the session and she walks out. <laughs> like what? Like this only happens in the movies. <laughs> no, it happened to, to me actually twice in my, in my therapy career. So that's, uh-huh. I don't know what's that saying about me, but <laughs> so, she gets, she's like, Robert, I don't think you'd help me put me fast enough. And she leaves. Uh-huh. So uh, obviously I fell flat on my face on that one. You know, I had to eat some humble pie. I was thinking I was this big EMDR hotshot kind of guy. And I had to work on making this quicker. So that forced me to do this all in a weekend. Okay. So, so you know, how I does have- that happen? How do you, how do you consolidate all the work? If you're talking six, eight, 12 months, how do you consolidate that to a three, four day weekend? A couple of things. So, you know, we're, we're going really intense. So we're doing five hour days, okay, three days in a row. So we're going to get at least 15 hours and it's going to be a real deep dive in this weekend. So basically you got to block this off on your calendar. Okay. We're going to go here. Think of like a retreat model, right? You go away to a vacation house and you're going to do this work and then you come back and you're, and you're different. So it's like that. Well, so that the timing is important. We're doing everything all at once. The brain can take a lot more than most people think. We, we It's ready. When you feel supported by your therapist, you can go to those places. And it's great because it's the last time that you ever have to think about that you know, experience again, and we can process it. Mm-hmm. The other thing that's really important too is it's my own life history. You know, I've been through what I considered about 10% of everything that life can throw at you, right? From addictions to abusive relationships, to jail, to, you know, um, some money, some 
not so much money, um, everything in between. We've kind of done a lot of stuff. So I know what it's like to empathize with my clients and go there to those deep places. I've been suicidal before, you know, thought about it. Yeah. So I know what these depths are like. Yeah. So that's really important. Where the therapist can take you is, is critical. And then really the, the third piece is the amount of training, you know, that your person's going through in their life. You know, if they're just, you know, grabbing one degree, hanging a shingle and let's right. do it. Uh, I want to, I want to know that I'm well supported. So it's all three of those things together that really make this a fast process for me. I've been able to fine tune. I know what my the inner voice of that person, what they need. And mm -hmm. that's what I'm able to bring out. So people hear this podcast and, and a lot of people that hear this podcast are dealing with trauma. All right. And every, I always say there's no wrong way to get sober. And I think trying different types of therapy, any kind of therapy, just, uh, just try it. If you don't, if you haven't found something that works for you yet, you got to You got to just keep trying, man. Just keep, trying as people are doing research on emdr and therapists in their area do you first of all do you do virtual appointments or is this something that needs to be done in person so i've been actually been doing virtual appointments with clients that couldn't reach me for years okay. you know two or three years before okay. covid hit. okay yeah. all right great so so that's a, a phenomenal option for those of you looking for therapy want to reach out to robert he does them virtually. If uh, you're just on this journey and you're trying to figure out where it fits into your life, what are some things people should be looking for in an EMDR therapist that that makes them reputable? Yeah, good, good, good. Great questions. I actually have a book that I wrote okay. for that reason. It's pretty Excellent. cheap. It's like 10 bucks. Uh, you need therapy. It's called just type my name in on Amazon. You need therapy. and It'll come up. On top of a bunch of things uh, about what trauma is like, what's happening in the brain and all that stuff, and what EMDR is, um, in the back of the book, I talk about questions to ask your EMDR therapist or potential therapist. And you want to know, you know, like I said before, are they certified? Where did they get their training? How long ago did they get their training? Are they certified yet? Are they approved consultant? Are they a trainer? What's the degree of their training in EMDR? And are they, are they making that? Is that a foundational piece of their, of their practice? Or is it, I do CBT, I do DBT, I do psychoanalysis, I do Jungian, I do, you know, EMDR. And for me personally, if, if a therapist is coming with 20 tools, to me, I feel like that person may, you know, quote, may be, um, you know, uh, trained in all areas, maybe, you know, not a master in, in any one of them, right. if, you know, the saying how that goes. Right. So that's something to ask about you're going to want to know, you know, has the therapist ever dealt with your particular issue before? Don't be afraid to ask the therapist about some of their own life experiences. Right. I think that's important. Or, I think this is your interview as much as it is, you know, there, you know, this is, this is your life. You want to make sure when you're choosing a therapist that the first one that you call doesn't have to be right. And don't worry about, hurting anybody's feelings. The The doctor shouldn't make you feel pressured to come back to see them, number one. And you should have the, you know, you should be open with them and say, you're, you're just starting your search. You're, you're, you're going on a couple more consultations if you have them. Uh, and maybe even say that just so that you don't feel tied into anything. You know, maybe that's just a good line to end it with. But 
you know, I would say give it, go try some stuff, go out and start talking to people and do a little bit of research and, and be comfortable with that person. Ask them the questions because you're going to be sitting with them and you're going to be paying them money, pretty good money. Some of these, some, some of these guys, you mm-hmm. know, so, so you want to make sure you're getting the best bang for your buck and, and you're being intentional during that hour or, or 45 minutes that you're there. So I love that. And, and your book is You Need Therapy. Make sure you guys go and check that out. I see it in the background there. Uh, I didn't know you wrote a book. I'm going to have to get that one too. There's one other thing that I really want to talk to you about because I know you're passionate about it. I'm passionate about it. And I don't think it's talked about enough. And that is men's sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you're a part of the BC Society of Male Sexual Abuse and I know it's part of your past. It's part of my past. It's part of many men's past. I would probably say 90% of men don't talk about it. And it's real and it happens. It happened to me by female babysitters. And it happened to me by a male figure that was a shipmate of my dad's when I was a teenager. So it doesn't just happen to kids when they're vulnerable, air quotes. You know, I was 13 years old when... You know, when I was sexually assaulted for the, I don't even know how, however many times it was at that point, but it's something we need to talk about on this show because I've touched on it in a couple other shows, but I know you specialize in it. And so I want to hear, what are you doing? Uh, what's your experience? Uh, what's your experience with sexual abuse? And what are you doing now to combat it, to talk about it, to teach it, to, you know, what are you doing now in the, in the space for sexual abuse specifically for men? Yeah, um, it's wonderful. I am so thankful that you're bringing that up because, you know, that the silence that's attached to males, not just male survivors of sexual abuse, but males with mental health concerns in general is uh, it's just a, such a silent space. And thankfully, they, you have some, some wonderful people like you that are bringing this up and, and going into the depths of sexual abuse for men. You know, there, there's, there's such, you know, there's such a stigma for so many men. Um, and confusion attached to it that just is really hard to manage. My experience, so I have been sexually abused myself. I, I, would, I always preface it and say it, it was a sort of a minor experience where I was forced to masturbate and I didn't want to. So I was, I was not consenting. And so I consider that that's abuse. Mm-hmm. 100%. Um, I, al- I always say to people as well that don't compare your abuse. So just I say that on, on the heels of what I just said. Right. So my, my professional experience is start off with the BC Society for Male Survivors of Sexual Abuse or a nonprofit here in BC. Been running for almost 30 years. Wonderful organization. I'm no longer with them at this time. Okay. Uh, I may return and, and join the board to help out on that level, but I've uh, stepped away now. But that was where I started off. I considered that the deep end. I jumped into my therapy, you know, career by jumping into the deep end. And you know, these these are men that have been severely traumatized in some of the worst ways and have never been able to speak about it uh, and never go there. And finally, they're having the courage to do that. It's incredible. The numbers are actually quite staggering. You know, for women. The, the numbers are about 50% of women have been sexually assaulted, harassed, or abused in some way. For men, the numbers were one in four, but it's closer to one in three. And those are the men that are talking about it. 
So I think it's actually quite a bit higher. And a lot of guys don't really know what constitute as sexual abuse. So anytime I'll put this out there, anytime that you are not consenting to the experience, that is abuse. That is Mm non-consensual abuse. Okay. So jumping into it, you know, I, I worked with three, four, five, six years, I think in uh, specializing in, in male surviving sexual abuse. One of the main issues that guys have one is, you know, and thankfully it's starting to change now a little bit, but we've not really been a society that promotes men to speak about emotions and to understand them. And to, so men end up dealing with our emotions by suppressing them. You know, let's, you know, classically, we could get angry, we could be happy, um, we could drink, we could have sex. That was about it. Mm-hmm. There was no other emotional expressions or uh, behaviors that we were allowed to do. I'm simplifying, but yeah. So we learned to you know mask it with something. It's very painful when people don't have a a, a safe place to to take that behavior. Because ideally, uh, obviously, the, the 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 most ideal is that it just never happens. But if it does happen, what you want for that person, especially if they're a child, is to have a safe place they can talk about it and process it right away so that it doesn't become something you know worse and worse and worse and that goes really for any age but we end up often dealing with it on our own we just suppress it hold it in never happen we would just denial the classic grief response is yep. denial anger you know sadness one of the main things that is very difficult to navigate for the male uh is their sexuality mm-hmm you know, especially so if a, if a boy is abused by a boy or a man and we get an erection because that's what the body does when you stimulate it in a certain way, you get an erection. The person believes many times, oh, this must mean I'm gay because I got an erection. You might be gay and that's fine, but you also might not be. You might just be a human body that, that responded to the stimulation. So that becomes, you know, for that person, if they're raised in a, in a non-accepting environment of sexuality, they can now, now they, oh, I might be gay. So they had that one. I was abused. I was, now I'm, now I'm gay. Uh, you know, my life's falling apart. So they, so they, they go inward and they hold it all in. Also, if, you know, I've had CEOs come to me, you know, with rage issues that are like, oh, God, I, I'm just this big asshole. I just don't know how to. Like I get in a cab and I yell at the guy because he took a left turn instead of a right. Like, I don't want to be that person. I'm the asshole. Well, you're not really an asshole. You're just responding to an early experience where, so if you're a young boy and you're abused by an older woman and by older, I mean, it could be like three or four years older, but you might be encouraged. Even if you go to your friends, you know, at that age, like, dude, this happened to me. And they're like, oh, Robert, you know, you scored good for you. Like you did like you. That's not the experience. You don't want to be uh, invalidated that way. So again, they get shamed uh, because they they feel they have a problem with it versus, you know, it actually being a problem. So there's all these different ways of what that, of what's happening, really what needs to happen. This is one of the coolest things in part of that organization. I, I did some group work and it was so beautiful. It was fascinating. It was beautiful to be part of a group of guys where coming from completely different backgrounds, we had, you know, ultra wealthy 
totally poor, you know, flamboyantly gay closet, you know, homosexual and like everything in between all different backgrounds. Everybody had the shared experience of what it was like to go through some of these horrific experiences. Mm -hmm. And even more confusing for some guys is if they're still in love with their abuser, because sometimes, you know, men can be groomed. It's called for years before they're ever actually, you know, touched or something. And so the person grows to believe that that individual was a mentor, you know, like a second father or, you know, some kind of a coach or, and which is all these places it can all happen. Yeah. And so they have strong attached feelings to that person. And it's not the therapist's job or anybody else's is right to say how that person should feel about their abuser. I would say just acknowledge that it was abuse. That's all you got to do. And if you want to love that person still, go for it. You want to hate them, go for it. Please don't hurt them, you know, yeah. uh, physically, but you know, we'll, we'll get the authorities to do that. Um, but that's really it. It's up to the person how they want to manage it. So a good therapist will help the individual with how they want to go forward with that. That is a very interesting way to look at it because having to be okay with the fact that a client is okay with the abuse is, is, is tough. I mean, that's, it's a tough, it, it would be tough for me to sit across and not want to shake them up a little bit and, 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 you know, and say, what the hell are you doing? You know, but it's a hundred percent true. It's not your life. And it is, it's their decision on how they choose to deal with the abuse. And all you can do is point it out that it's there. And that's and right. They, how, how they respond to it is completely up to them. And I thank you for that. Cause that's, that's a completely different way to think about that. I, I, you're welcome. And, and, you know, really all abuse and trauma comes down to the person feeling powerless and in danger in some way. And so that and when we're talking about sexual abuse, that's really, really amplified. So good therapy, the person should leave feeling empowered mm-hmm. and in control of themselves. Mm-hmm. That's a great tip. That's a great tip to end on. We're running up on the hour right here, Robert. So I got to wrap this up, but I would want to thank you so so much for spending this last hour with me. And before we go, tell my listeners where they can find you, follow you, read about you, you know, maybe even schedule an appointment with you. Yeah. Um, so the, I've gone through a rebrand, so you can go to anything, just type in the celebrity savior and it'll take you to my website, Instagram, Facebook page, all that, uh, the celebrity savior, uh, Twitter is info Grigor, but on that my site, you can find all kinds of information about me and how I work, what I do. And, you know, if you hop on Instagram, you'll see, you know, some tips that I throw on there. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's great to be connected. So I'm happy to field any questions to that come through awesome. any of those means. Awesome. Awesome. And you got to tell me, you got to touch, touch on the celebrity uh, savior. Why, why the rebrand and why the name? <laughs> Well, it kind of came as a as a, a funny happenstance, if okay. you will. Um, I think part really cosmically or spiritually for me, it was when that celebrity walked out on me. I was like, wow. You know, I didn't really, I had worked with a few celebrities and learned that, you know, really when it comes down to it, 
celebrities' issues are human issues. Right. Um, they just maybe have more money or they're more creative in particular different ways. So one of my just sad realities of the world and something that I want to change is the number of celebrities that have committed suicide over the last 10 years. By my count, there's 150 celebrity suicides. And not that celebrities are you know, more important than anybody else to me, but it's, it's that I look at celebrities. These are the people that got me through those dark times. You know, when I watched Robin Williams and Aladdin mm-hmm. and, you know, he was the genie, like I watched that movie like a hundred times and, you know, Jim Carrey and, mm-hmm. um, you know, different music like Alice in Chains and Nirvana. I grew up mm-hmm. on these things mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Soundgarden and all the, these are the, the, you know, the guides, the mentors before I had mentors. These are the ways that I ch- uh, channeled my emotions. I don't know if you know, that was a, uh, a lead singer and guitarist before I became a therapist. So I, I used music as a form of therapy. I looked up to these people and I look at these celebrities as our, as our real leaders in the world. And, you know, if somebody says, you know, I just brought an espresso machine. So George Clooney tells me to go buy an espresso. I'm going to buy an espresso. So <laughs> <laughs> Christmas present just ruined it. I <laughs> uh, don't listen. To this. <laughs> but uh, so I look at them as our, our real you know, leaders, one of them. And I, I just want to do my part to, to help these wounded people mm-hmm. um, be able to share their gifts with more people for longer. Yeah, it's, it's just it's one of my missions. Awesome. And listen, the reality is, is that celebrities deal with a lot more shit than the normal person does. You know, they have a lot more stuff on their plate. They got a lot more magnifying glasses on them. And and so I can imagine the stress level of someone at celebrity level, you know, could be pretty high, especially between the ears. So that's awesome, man. Hey, guys. Thanks again for checking out the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast. Get yourselves over to Robert Grigor's The Celebrity Saviors website. Check all of his stuff out. Look, If you're looking for some new therapy, like I said before, check out EMDR. It's worth a shot. You know, it, it can't hurt. You know, and, and when you're trying to find your journey on in recovery or in just mental health, there's no wrong way. And as long as you're taking steps to better yourself... And those around you, man, we're, we're all here to support you. So thanks again for tuning in. Robert, thank you again for, for being here for the last hour. And until next time, guys, peace and love. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast. If you haven't done so already, head on over to your favorite podcast provider, to subscribe and download the Alcoholic Entrepreneur Podcast. And if you or anyone you know is struggling with substance abuse or addiction issues, please point them to this podcast. Let them know they are not alone. And at the very least, reach out, DM me, and I'll do what I can from where I'm at. Be well, guys.